For this week's podcast, I want to do something a little bit different. Instead of talking about animals, I want to tell you about some people, some notable naturalists who have made an impact in the field of conservation. Now, there's a lot of famous naturalists. You've probably heard of names like Thoreau, Muir, Audubon, or Carlson, and maybe sometime in the future we'll talk about those folks. But today, I want to introduce you to two brothers, half-brothers technically, whose names maybe you've never heard of, Olas and Adolf Murray, and tell you about the impact that you probably never knew they had, and in Adolf's case, the impact even he never knew he had on national parks, wildlife management, and wilderness areas. The Murray brothers played a vital role in not only the creation or expansion of several national parks, wilderness areas, and wildlife refuges, but in the way that we manage wildlife in those areas. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Olas Muri was born on March 1, 1889, in Moorhead, Minnesota, the son of Norwegian immigrants Joachim and Marie Muri. When Olas was just six years old, Joachim passed away in 1895. His mother remarried, a man named Ed Winstrom, and in 1899, Olas's half-brother Adolf was born. Unfortunately, Ed Winstrom died shortly after Adolf's birth. Now, present-day Moorhead, Minnesota, is essentially a suburb of Fargo, North Dakota, and the greater Fargo area boasts a current population of right around 200,000 people. But in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when the Murray brothers were young, it was considerably more rural, which helped foster a love of wilderness in both brothers from an early age. Olas started his college education studying biology at Fargo College, a private liberal arts college. When his zoology professor moved to Pacific University, a private university located outside Portland, Oregon, he offered Olas a scholarship. So Olas transferred, graduating in 1912 with a degree in zoology and wildlife biology. In 1914, Olas was hired by W.E. Clyde Todd, curator of birds at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, as part of a team studying wildlife in Canada. Olas's job was collecting bird, rodent, and larger mammal specimens, as well as sketching and taking photographs of different organisms and environments. He had to preserve animal skins as well as rolls of film for the museum. Olas became so accustomed to the harsh environment of the Arctic that he remained in Canada for an extra winter after his colleagues had left, collecting more samples and studying the ecological and cultural similarities and differences between the Hudsonian and Arctic life zones. In 1917, he returned to Canada with Clyde Todd and other members of the 1914 team. On this expedition, they traveled 700 miles across Labrador, a trip that had never been done before. Along the way, they collected 1,862 specimens, which represented 141 species of bird and 30 species of mammals. The pristine and untouched conditions of the Arctic, due to the lack of humans, inspired Olas to establish a more holistic understanding of humans' impact on the environment, a view that would continue to evolve in subsequent trips around North America. Olas served in the Army during World War I, and after the war in 1920, he accepted a position working for the U.S. Biological Survey in Alaska, studying caribou. 
In addition to acting as the fur warden, enforcing laws to protect animals from illegal hunting, his job involved locating and capturing large bull caribou with the intention of crossbreeding them with domestic reindeer. He was also encouraged to ensure large caribou herds, employing one of the most common techniques of the time, predator poisoning. But the more Olas studied the caribou, the more he began to oppose this practice. Olas felt that hunting, as it was done by humans, ran counter to the way nature worked. He once remarked, quote, I have a theory that certain amount of preying on caribou by wolves is beneficial to the herd, that the best animals survive and the vigor of the herd is maintained. Man's killing does not work in this natural way, as the best animals are shot and inferior animals left to breed, unquote. But furthermore, he believed that even the hunter was not the greatest threat, but humans' economic drive, basically habitat loss to development. What Olas had figured out long before most others was that caribou, elk, and many other large animals need ample space and that to ensure the survival of a species, we need to preserve their habitat. It seems obvious now, but at the time, this was a somewhat revolutionary concept. Olas spent the majority of 1920 to 1926 in Alaska conducting an exhaustive study of Alaskan caribou, mapping migratory routes and estimating numbers. It was during this time that Olas met Margaret, known as Marty Thompson, notable in her own right. Marty was the first woman to graduate from the Alaska Agricultural College and School of Mines, which is now the University of Alaska Fairbanks, earning a degree in business administration. Olas and Marty were married in 1924 and spent their honeymoon traveling over 500 miles by dog sled, studying birds and conducting research on the caribou of the Brooks Range. Marty would continue to work alongside Olas throughout his life, her idea of preserving entire ecosystems laid the scientific and intellectual groundwork for large parks and preserves. Now, 1927 was an eventful year for Olas and Marty. Their first child, a daughter, Joanne, was born. Olas earned a graduate degree from the University of Michigan and was hired as the chief field biologist by the National Elk Commission to study the problem of winter elk mortality in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. The family moved to Wyoming and over the next few years had two more children, sons Martin and Donald. Studying the elk in Jackson Hole, Olas found that human development was causing overcrowding in the elk's winter range. Surprisingly, at least to me, Olas was one of the first biologists to discover that elk did not reside solely on the prairie, but in the mountains as well. In addition, Olas found that supplemental feeding on rougher browse, along with the seeds of certain grasses and the elk refuge, was causing bacterial lesions in the elk's throat and mouths. The relatively crowded conditions allowed the bacteria to spread more easily. Olas concluded that protecting elk habitat initially would have been easier than trying to mitigate the problems after the fact. His work with the elk of Jackson Hole eventually resulted in the classic book, The Elk of North America, and earned him the unofficial title of The Father of Modern Elk Management. In 1937, Olas took a position on the council of the newly created Wilderness Society, where he continued to fight to preserve habitat. He and Marty successfully lobbied against the construction of large dams in Glacier National Park, Dinosaur National Monument, Alaska's Yukon River, and Idaho's Snake River Canyon. 
They were also instrumental in expanding the boundaries of places like Olympic National Park in Washington State and creating new units in many other national parks. In 1943, he helped create the Jackson Hole National Monument, a place near and dear to his heart because of the research he did there, which would later be designated a national park and eventually incorporated into Grand Teton National Park. When Jackson Hole National Monument was established, Olas was appointed the head of the Wildlife Management Division of the National Park Service and tasked with creating a management plan for the newly created park. Much to the dismay of sportsmen, Olas banned hunting within the park boundaries. However, Olas knew that the most effective way to appeal to the American public was to emphasize the economic value of preservation, and he was able to show that Jackson Hole's local economy was enhanced by tourism attracted by the monument. He was promoting ecotourism long before it was even a thing. In 1945, Olas resigned his position with the Biological Survey and assumed a part-time directorship of the Wilderness Society, with Marty taking a position as secretary. It was at this time that Olas and Marty bought a ranch near Moose, Wyoming, which bordered on the now two-year-old Jackson Hole National Monument. The Murray Ranch subsequently became the headquarters for the Wilderness Society. It was sold to the National Park Service in 1968 so that it could be incorporated into Grand Teton National Park, although the family retained a long-term lease on the property. Currently, the house and grounds are the headquarters for the Murray Foundation, a nonprofit organization founded in 1997 dedicated to carrying on the work and ideals of the Murray family. After his retirement, Olas and his family continued to travel and fight for conservation. In 1948, Olas was awarded a Fulbright grant to study elk that Teddy Roosevelt had sent to New Zealand. Their son Donald, now 17 years old, was the expedition photographer. In 1956, Olas and Marty traveled back to the Brooks Range in Alaska with three young biologists to seek out areas with wilderness value. This would be the start of Olas and Marty's campaign to protect 8 million acres of Arctic habitat. They recruited U.S. Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas to help, and in 1960, under President Dwight D. Eisenhower, Interior Secretary Fred Seaton established the Arctic National Wildlife Range, now known as the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Olas spent the winter of 1962 with Howard Zaninzer, a member of the Wilderness Society who was working to pass a Wilderness Act. Unfortunately, Olas would not see the Wilderness Act come to fruition. Olas passed away from skin cancer on October 12, 1963, at the age of 74. However, Marty was present when President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Wilderness Act into law in 1964. Her help in getting the Wilderness Act passed led her to being dubbed the Grandmother of the Conservation Movement by the Sierra Club and the Wilderness Society. After Olas's death, Marty continued to advocate for wilderness, giving speeches and writing. She traveled extensively and visited the many friends she had made around the world. In 1975, Marty spoke at a National Park Service conference, then spent much of the year flying around Alaska as a consultant, identifying lands that merited protection. 
Her years of experience in Alaska and familiarity with its biology and ecology informed her report, which was used by Congress to pass the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act in 1980, protecting 56.4 million acres as wilderness, plus tens of millions more acres as national parks and wildlife refuges. Marty passed away at her home in Moose, Wyoming on October 19, 2003, at the age of 101. Wow, what a story, right? And we haven't even gotten to Olaf's brother Adolf yet. Just to review, Adolf Murray was actually born Adolf Winstrom in 1899. His father, Ed Winstrom, his mother's second husband, died shortly after he was born, and his mother Marie resumed the surname Murray. When he was old enough, Adolf legally changed his last name to Murray to match his brother and Olaf's. Now, it's not surprising that Adolf followed in his brother's footsteps, sometimes quite literally. Olaf was 10 years older than Adolf, and I can only assume that Adolf looked up to his older brother. Adolf was 15 when Olaf first went to Canada with the Carnegie Museum expedition, and 18 when Olaf made his historic trek across Labrador. Adolf went to Concordia College, another private college that was located right in Moorhead, Minnesota. In 1920, he joined his brother Olaf's expedition to study the caribou at Mount McKinley, what is now Denali National Park. This would be Adolf's first, but certainly not his last, trip to Alaska. On a side note, according to one source I read, there was another Murray brother, Martin, who was supposed to join Olaf on this expedition, but he died of tuberculosis that same year, so Adolf was invited instead. I couldn't find any other information on Martin, but it's probably for him that Olaf and Marty named their own son Martin. Adolf graduated from Concordia College in 1925 with a degree in biology and went to graduate school at the University of Michigan, just like Olaf. He also spent the next three years working as a seasonal ranger at Glacier National Park. He would earn his Ph.D. in the young field of ecology in 1929 with a dissertation on the oh-so-exciting topic of the ecological relationship of deer-mouse subspecies. Somewhere along the line, he met and fell in love with Louise Wheezy Gillette, who, not coincidentally, was Marty's half-sister. They were married in 1932. Like Olaf and Marty, Louise, and eventually Louise and Adolf's two children, accompanied Adolf on his many travels and helped with his work. In 1934, Adolf was hired as a wildlife biologist by the National Park Service. In that position, he studied a variety of species in several park units, during which time he really solidified his ecological approach to wildlife management. Now, in 1937, Adolf began a study of coyotes in Yellowstone National Park. At this point, I need to give you a brief background on the history of predator management in Yellowstone National Park so you can really understand the significance of Adolf's conclusions. Yellowstone National Park was America's first national park, established in 1872. Now, by this time, the most controversial of all predators, the gray wolf, was already declining across Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. And the creation of Yellowstone did nothing to protect the wolf, or any other predator for that matter. In the early years of the park, administrators, hunters, and visitors were free to kill any game or predator they came across. Hunting game was prohibited in 1883, 
But that prohibition didn't extend to predators. Wolves, coyotes, mountain lions, bears, or any other small predator could still be killed on sight. When Adolf Murie began his study, wolves had been extirpated from the park for over a decade. The last wolf in Yellowstone was shot in 1926. It wasn't until 1931 that a policy limiting predator control to, quote, only what was necessary, unquote, was put into place. And by that time, not only wolves, but mountain lions as well had been virtually eliminated from all national parks in the lower 48 states. Only the coyote remained as the apex predator in the park, and even then, there was significant animosity toward it. The prevailing attitude was summed up by Roger Toll, the superintendent of Yellowstone, who stated at the 1932 superintendent conference that a herd of antelope and deer was, quote, more valuable than a herd of coyotes, unquote. He went on to say that it was not predators, but elk, deer, and antelope that were, quote, the type of animal the park was for, unquote. Wholesale killing of coyotes in Yellowstone continued well into the fall of 1933. Now, the killing of coyotes in the park did decline after this. The Park Service expressed the desire to use increased scientific data rather than ancestral prejudice to make management decisions. But in spite of this, predator control efforts, especially when it came to coyotes, remained a contentious issue. There were people starting to recognize that the coyote, as well as other large predators, had a place in the ecosystem. In 1935, Assistant Chief Ranger Frank W. Childs recommended that the park suspend the killing of coyotes for at least two years, with the intention of carefully studying the effect on prey populations. But even with opinions like this increasing, by 1937, interest in further coyote reduction had also intensified. So it was against that backdrop that Adolf began his study of coyotes in Yellowstone National Park, the results of which were eventually published in the book, The Ecology of the Coyote in the Yellowstone. And that's not a mispronunciation, it really is in the Yellowstone. What he concluded was that coyote predation did not significantly affect prey populations and had only a negligible impact on elk. Furthermore, in the conclusion he wrote, quote, the National Park Service is charged with the responsibility of preserving designated areas, selected samples of primitive America in their natural condition for the enjoyment and study of present and future Americans. In line with high purpose, the fauna and flora should be subjected to a minimum of disturbance. Now, as you can probably imagine, this conclusion was not well received by the coyote haters. They didn't just say, oh, well, I guess we were wrong. There was even some top Park Service officials who wanted Adolf fired, which astounds me. They wanted him fired for reaching a scientific conclusion that conflicted with their beliefs. Fortunately for both Adolf and the Coyotes of Yellowstone, Adolf found support in Park Service Commissioner Kammerer. Controversial or not, this study set the stage for Adolf's next study, this time on wolves. During the 1930s, doll sheep populations at Mount McKinley had been declining, and wolf predation was thought to be the cause. So in 1939, on the heels of his hotly contested coyote study, the Park Service assigned Adolf to study the relationship between wolves and sheep at Mount McKinley. Or maybe they were hoping he'd get eaten by wolves, I don't know. 
From 1939 to 1941, Adolf collected detailed field observations, including the discovery that wolves ate mice. Again, he concluded that the sheep population decline was not, in fact, a result of wolf predation, but instead caused by severe late winter weather. And furthermore, predators played an important role in an intact ecosystem. These results would eventually be published as the book The Wolves of Mount McKinley. These two studies led directly to the termination of predator eradication programs in the two parks, and although he didn't live to see it, his work laid the scientific foundation for the eventual reintroduction of wolves into the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in the late 1990s. Like his brother Olaus, the father of modern elk management, Adolf's work earned him the unofficial title of Denali's Wilderness Conscience. His work profoundly shaped wildlife management policies and wilderness conservation in Denali National Park and Preserve and Yellowstone National Park, and the ripples would be felt throughout the national park system. In addition to the ecology of the coyote in the Yellowstone and the wolves of Mount McKinley, Adolf Murie authored several other books, numerous scientific studies, and contributed articles for a number of conservation magazines. He shot movies as part of his observations, which were shown to tourists each season by the naturalists at Mount McKinley and throughout the lower 48 states. Copies were even distributed to foreign countries. When Adolf retired from the Park Service in 1965, after over 30 years of service, he was awarded the Department of the Interior's Distinguished Service Award, the department's highest honor. Adolf Murray passed away from an epileptic seizure on August 16, 1974, at the age of 74, the same age as his brother Olaus. On another side note, Louise Wheezy Murray passed away May 12, 2012, at the age of 100, just a year younger than her sister Marty. Now, I know there are many things about the lives of Olaus, Marty, Adolf, and Louise Murray that I left out, so if you're interested in learning more about them or their work, check out some of their books. In addition to the ones I mentioned here, Two in the Far North, published in 1962, is Margaret Murray's memoir of her early life, marriage, and research expeditions in Alaska. She's also the author of Island Between, about early Eskimo culture and the impact of its eventual encounters with other peoples, and Wapiti Wilderness, which she co-authored with Olas as a sequel to Two in the Far North. Among other works, Adolf wrote A Naturalist in Alaska, concerning the domestic ways and interrelationships of the wildlife in Alaska, the grizzly bear, the wolf, the lynx, the wolverine, the doll sheep, the caribou, and the arctic fox. One last thought, a quote from Adolf Murray. Let us not have puny thoughts. Let us think on a greater scale. Let us not have those of the future decry our smallness of concept and lack of foresight. Well, Wild Wanderers, I hope you enjoyed this notable naturalist episode of the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Don't forget to leave a like and follow us so you'll always be in the know when new episodes are released. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast and want to support future episodes, please head over to our Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty.
The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.